Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, I don't know where you were when you got the news that the very first ever United States president had set foot in North Korea or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea to give it its Sunday name. Well, me, I was in Donald Trump's bed, not his actual bed, but a bed owned by him at the Trump Turnberry Hotel in Ayrshire in Scotland, where I was attending a very special 60th birthday celebration in honor of my good friend David and thrown and organized, fantastic it was, by his good wife, wonderful wife, Rosalind. So there I was, propped up on these duck down pillows. I tell you, you've never slept on a pillow, pillow till you've slept on one owned by Donald Trump, watching Donald Trump walking across that little bridge and giving a hug to the little rocket man who just over a year ago he was threatening to eviscerate in a hail of missiles some of which could maybe would have been nuclear missiles i know it's had a mixed response i see that a number of the u.s democratic presidential hopefuls are showering down abuse on trump for meeting the leader of north korea for me I absolutely approve of it. The more leaders meeting more often, shaking hands and talking, jaw, jaw instead of war, war and the threat of war, war, the better. And I'll go further. I thought Donald Trump had not a bad week at the G20, strutting around like he owned the place, as of course he would like to do. But that was then. Now is now. He no longer owns the G20, but he acted as if he did. But he did some good things. He called off the trade war with the People's Republic of China and opened the door to Huawei, don't you know? That Gavin Williamson is back in politics. He's the British government minister, defense minister no less, who lost his job over the Huawei affair. So all the tables have turned. Huawei, we're now allowed. Anybody got a Huawei? They can sell me. They're now back in the game, at least temporarily. But temporarily is better than nothing at all. He had good talks with President Putin, the Russian leader, and that's a good thing too. After all, everyone in Europe is getting extremely exercised by the presence of short and medium-ranged missiles capable of carrying nuclear warheads that the Russians have deployed. But the Russians have only deployed them because Donald Trump withdrew from the very treaty that forbade their deployment. It's Kafka-esque, actually. You break the treaty, and then you blame the other fellow for the consequences of it. If that sounds familiar, that's exactly what's happened in relation to the Iran nuclear deal, which, of course, would also have featured, not just in the discussions, 
between President Putin and President Trump, but I expect all the leaders, including the European leaders, who definitely don't want war with Iran, which in any case seems to have receded a little. If you're picking up a pattern here, it's this, that Trump is full of wind and fury, his language is extremely aggressive, belligerent, bellicose, but actually he's killed a lot less people than President Hillary Clinton would have done. He has killed a lot less people than President Barack Obama actually did. So me, you know, call me a, a man of shrunken expectations, but I'll settle for boorish bullying and browbeating rather than the hail of missiles crunching down on people's heads. Not that Trump hasn't done some of that, and he has facilitated much of that in the war in Yemen and indeed upon the heads of the Palestinian people. And no doubt these are issues to which we will return. And I note that the next G20 is in what they call the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but it's actually run by the Crown Prince. And Trump hailed the bone-saw murderer, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, the man who chopped up into pieces. My old friend, the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. That should have gone down like a lead balloon in the United States, but I don't actually see much static from the usual suspects from the liberal brigade. They're not so much interested in what happened to Jamal. They're only interested in throwing brickbats at President Trump. So I personally think if you were reviewing the week, you'd give them six out of 10, maybe edging up towards a seven. Tell me what you think, 02077 982 of course, the Democratic Party are limbering up to run against President Trump in 2020. And the Democratic Party, as we foreshadowed last week, had not one, but two sets of hustings. We'll be talking to an expert guest, Cassandra Fairbanks, on how those debates went. Who's up? Who's down? Who won? Who lost? I did see Joe Biden, the man that Hillary Clinton and the rest of the Democratic establishment almost certainly want to win, looking rather disturbingly like a waxwork dummy and talking not much more eloquently than a waxwork dummy would do. Here on this side of the pond, well, I'm afraid that the big story of the week was the lifting of the suspension on a rather important Labour opposition member of Parliament, Chris Williamson, followed 24 hours later by his re-suspension. And it looks to me like he's a goner because Labour parties will, in the next 11 days now, begin to select or at least pave the way for the selection of their candidates for a general election. So it may very well be that as a Labour MP, we've seen the last of Chris Williamson. Now, full disclosure, although I don't know him personally very well, I have been tremendously impressed by the work that Chris Williamson has been doing 
over these last four years. If I put it to you this way, if you're not part of our British audience, but you are listening internationally, Chris Williamson is the MP most supportive, most publicly, of the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. And that's probably why he's now been put out. But he also toured the country on a democracy roadshow, effectively trying to encourage constituency Labour parties, the local Labour parties, to know their rights where it came to replacing MPs that had spent the last four years undermining their own party, undermining uh, the leader, Jeremy Corbyn, because their allegiance remained almost entirely with the former leader, Tony Blair, formerly of this parish. Most of you in the world will know the death and destruction that he caused throughout the world. But believe it or not, he's still got more than 100 Labour members of Parliament on his leash. And he unleashes them with regularity to attack the actual now leader of the Labour Party. Their weapon of choice should also be familiar across the Atlantic. The weapon of choice is false allegations of anti-Semitism. Now, I said to you I don't know Chris Williamson well, but I know his public record very, very well. Chris Williamson has never said or done a single anti-Semitic thing in his entire life. He's a man of the left. And what they really mean by anti-Semitism is anti-Israelism. What they really mean is somebody standing up for the Palestinian people. Somebody questioning Netanyahu rigorously, forensically and unrelentingly. And this was foretold on this very show when it was on another platform by Dr. Norman Finkelstein, Professor Norman Finkelstein, who said that what was happening to Labour on the subject of anti-Semitism would be used as a trial run for the very same attack on Senator Sanders should he be the Democratic Party's candidate. And that struck me at the time as being almost certainly true. And it has come true. The very things they say about Corbyn and Labour, they're saying about Representative Ilham Omar and other members of the US Congress. They're saying about Bernie Sanders, although he is himself Jewish, and that's before he's got the gig. If Bernie were to win the nomination, and or if he were to run as a third party candidate, be ready for the Jeremy Corbyn treatment, the Chris Williamson treatment, false allegations of anti-Semitism. Now, don't get me wrong. Anti-Semitism is a foul, vile, virulent, fatal poison. It caused the greatest crime of the 20th century, maybe one of the greatest crimes of all human history. Because it wasn't just that there were six million Jews killed in the fascist Nazi death camps. It's that the Nazis intended to eliminate every single last Jew on the planet, if they could, certainly on the continent of Europe. An industrialized, systemized, genocidal attempt 
to wipe out literally an entire group of people. Not for anything that they had done, but because entirely of who and what they were. And anti-Semitism is still a thing. It's a thing on the right of politics, but it's also, thanks to some fools, a thing on the left of politics. Idiots who translate their detestation of the role of the banking sector, of globalized finance, transfer it. Not to Jews, they don't say Jews, but they bring up a Jewish name and try to indicate or imply that our problems with finance capital are somehow the responsibility of the Jews. They bring up Mr. Rothschild as if he controlled the world's banking system, which is absolute nonsense. But you'd be amazed at the number of left-wing people who say that kind of thing. People who say to me that Jews own the mass media when they own virtually none of the mass media. People who say that Rupert Murdoch is Jewish when he's not. People who imagine that somehow there's a cabal of Jews somewhere causing the problems for the mass of the people in the world. That's racism. That's anti-Semitism. I have said literally hundreds of times, hundreds, on radio, on television, in print, in parliament, on the streets, I have said that denying the Holocaust should be a criminal offence, thank you very much, should be a criminal offence in Britain as it is in many parts of Europe. And I hold to that. Anti-Semitism must be fought rigorously and wherever it raises its ugly head. But you know false allegations of anti-Semitism are not just wrong and unjust to the person being falsely accused. It's extremely dangerous on the principle of the old parable of the boy who cried wolf. If everybody's an anti-Semite, the real anti-Semites will be able to move under cover. And one day, God forbid, could be in a position to cause real harm to real people of the Jewish faith. So, I'm not saying that there's no anti-Semitism. I'm not even saying there's no anti-Semitism on the left. There is. But Jeremy Corbyn ain't no anti-Semite, bruv. And Chris Williamson isn't. Either. Now, Chris is at a meeting right now with his confidants to plan his next move. I've told him that there are many thousands of his confidants listening and watching uh, this program and giving him an open invitation between now uh, and the next uh, two hours and 44 minutes, to be precise, to call in and talk to us. And if he does, of course, we'll put him straight onto the airwaves. So we're talking to Cassandra Fairbanks uh, on the debates, but also on her friend and mine, Julian Assange. She's a redoubtable campaigner to try and free Julian Assange from the dungeon at Belmarsh Prison 
in South London and to stop him falling into an even greater gulag in the U.S. injustice system. We'll be talking to Kevin Marr, a regular on the mother of all talk shows, a former Labour advisor, on the upheaval going on inside the Labour Party, to which I've just referred. And finally, we'll talk to Bill Bradshaw, the author of the book about the day that Bob Dylan got tangled up in the Isle of Wight. For non-Bob Dylan fans, the greatest Bob Dylan song is Tangled Up in Blue. Now, 50 years ago, the greatest, most famous open-air music festival in all history took place at Woodstock. Bob Dylan lived almost literally across the road from Woodstock. He chose not to go to Woodstock and to come to the Isle of Wight instead. Now, again, for international viewers and listeners, the Isle of Wight is a very, very small place. It's off the coast of England, and most people in England have no idea even how to get there. But Bob found his way there. And tomorrow, yesterday I was at Donald Trump's Towers in Ayrshire. Tomorrow I'm at Planet Hollywood because there's the launch of the publicity drive to get people to attend the 50th anniversary Isle of Wight Festival, where the presence of Bob Dylan 50 years before making history will be fully commemorated. He's uh, the author, as I say, of Bob Dylan at the Isle of Wight Festival 1969. He's Bill Bradshaw and he will be joining us. Cassandra Fairbanks, whom I uh, introduced in a way earlier, is a legend, actually, herself. She's from Gateway Pundit. She's a redoubtable campaigner for Julian Assange, as I said, but she's also got a very sharp eye on the US political system. And if I'm lucky, she's joining me now on Skype. Cassandra, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Fantastic to see you uh, on the screen. I thought it was just going to be a call. I'm so happy uh, that we're on Skype. Let's talk, if we can, first of all, about the uh, two Democratic Party hustings that took place on Wednesday and Thursday of this week. I'd like you to talk us through the runners and riders who did well, who did badly, uh, who moved up, who moved down. Can you do that for us? Sure. So the first Democratic debate was on Wednesday. Um, it had Tulsi Gabbard, who's um, I'm personally a big fan of. Um, She's she, the main anti-war, anti-imperialist, anti-interventionist uh, uh, candidate, isn't she? Yeah, and she was polling at between 0 and 1% before the debate, and she ended up being the most Google search candidate. The, she was, you know, she won the Drudge poll. Um, she's really great. I, they tried to trap her into, like, a domestic policy question, and she completely ignored it and started railing against, you know, war with Iran, and it was it was a pretty exciting and moment she's, for she's a former, uh, vet she's a veteran of the mm -hmm. armed services, too. She knows about war. 
Yeah, and she's great. She's also, she was the first politician to hop on TV immediately after Julian Assange was arrested and call for him to be released, called for charges to be dropped. Um, I, she's, she's gaining a lot of traction on both sides of the aisle right now. I think that there's a lot of Republicans, a lot of independents, just a lot of people who are sick of the establishment um, and who are disappointed in how Trump has hired a lot of neocons. Um, she's gaining a lot of support from those kind of people. And how did she do in the debate? Oh, she was great. She, um, like I had said before, she, she just completely ignored this question about like equal pay for women or something that they had lobbed at her. It was like a softball question. They clearly didn't want her to talk about foreign policy. She just completely ignored it, went off on foreign policy. She destroyed this neoliberal, I forget his name even right now. Uh, I think mm. it was Tim something. Mm. But he, he started talking about how we needed to, you know, fight the Taliban and stuff. And she just laid him out, did a murder on live television. It was yeah. pretty great. Who, um, else, who else was on that first night then? Uh, there was Buttigieg. There was... Tell us about him. He's a mayor, quite a controversial figure uh, in his own locality. Yeah, he's facing a lot of backlash right now because of an officer involved shooting in his town. Um, it, there's a racial element to it. I guess it was a white cop and a black suspect that got shot. And so he's dealing with a lot of backlash on that and his handling of it. Um, so there was, it was a good debate. Um, it was a lot more interesting than Thursday nights, I think, which had Biden and um, Kamala Harris. Well, we've seen a lot of coverage of Thursday night because uh, of the clash between Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. I described Biden earlier as looking like a figure in a waxwork uh, museum. Uh, I don't know what work he's had done, but it certainly robbed him of almost all facial expression. Um, I thought he did very badly in the debate. Yeah, I thought Biden was terrible. Um, I think that he dropped 10 points in the polls after the debate. Really? Um, his exchange with Kamala definitely did a number on his campaign. And he came across just out of touch and old and um, same old, same old, you know, everything that he talked about was like what he did with Obama. He didn't really talk about what he would do going forward. And I think that that really hurt him aside from, you know, Kamala destroying him in that back and forth. It was a, a very able piece of work by her. She, for those who didn't see it, she pointed out that Biden uh, had boasted previously of his close relationship with segregationist senators. Uh, who had opposed the busing of black children into schools that had hitherto been entirely white schools, the whole integrationist agenda. And she pointed out that she was, as a young girl, one of those students bussed into uh, a school that she would not otherwise have been able to enter uh, as part of the informal, unofficial segregationism that was still practiced in the United States when she was a school student. He, he really didn't recover from that, did he? No. And there's been a lot of like talk back and forth about whether or not her story was true because of the years that she was in school and things like that. But it, it didn't really matter because her performance was, she nailed it. I mean, they had obviously prepared her very well and he couldn't recover from it at all. It was, she, she killed him. <laughs> Tell us about Bernie Sanders. A lot of people listening to this on this side of the pond, and I expect elsewhere, uh, are uh, very much hoping that he can 
this time be the nominee as he was many people think robbed of being the nominee last time yeah i was a big supporter of bernie sanders in the previous primary i don't think that he did as well this time as he did you know during 2015 2016 i think he came across very angry and very like anti-trump like he, he was more focused on trump than he was about presenting his ideas um he still did well though i think he did pretty good um I'm pretty sure he went up in the polls after after the debate as well. Yeah, yeah, apparently he did, but not quite as much as uh, as others did or as Biden yeah. went down. Uh, so what happens now? That's the two uh, scheduled hustings. Is it on now to the first primaries? Um, I think that there's another round of debates, but it's going to be much smaller because the candidates have to raise double the amount of money that they raised to get into the first round. You had to raise 65 from 65,000 donors to get a place mm -hmm. in the debates. Yeah, and now they have to do double to get into the next round because there's just so many candidates. Yeah. Um, Any surprise so candidates, Cassandra? Anyone that no one had rated before, uh, suddenly uh, boosted? Um, I think that Tulsi came out a really big winner. She was, uh, a lot of people weren't familiar with her and a lot of people here are just sick of war. And she was the only candidate who talked about ending these wars, bringing money back home, working on, you know, things that we need to fix here. And it was, it was really refreshing, and I think that a lot of people saw that. I think that Andrew Yang has been doing pretty well because he's been getting, he's like the meme candidate now, but he kind of failed in the debates. He's alleged that they turned off his microphone, so he only got to speak for two minutes. A lot well, of people. That can were, happen. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people have before. been watching for him and what he was going to do, but I think that he, he came off. Um, he didn't come off as well as he should have. I, I, I read him saying that these kind of debates were not his milieu, not his uh, meter, because he's a more intellectual, uh, uh, he's better in writing, better one-to-one -one than in this adversarial clash of, uh, uh, of the titans, even though some of them are very far from being titanic. They're more like Titanic the movie and uh, sinking ships. Uh, do you think there's any merit in that? I mean, did you think the format was a good one? No, I think that it devolved into a yelling match half the time. Mm. Um, it came across just terrible. The moderators didn't have control of what was happening. There, there were screaming fights. Kamala actually got in a good line when she was like, you know, the people want it. They don't want to see a food fight. They want to hear about how they're going to get food on their tables. Um, it, was, it seemed pretty like rehearsed but it, it still came across really well because she she got everybody to shut up <laughs> and it, yeah. it was descending again, into chaos they it, had no control again it was a very effective uh, line uh, now what about the 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 shoe that didn't drop uh, elizabeth warren uh, is thought by many uh, to be the official uh, establishment uh, candidate if not biden then her how did she do I think she did well. Um, I, she's not one of my favorites, but I think that she came across very clear. She came across strong. Um, they definitely gave her more time than they did most candidates. I think it was her and Cory Booker had the most time during that debate. Um, and she had very softball questions. I think that they were clearly, you know, trying to make her look good. And it worked, um, I think. Has, has she gone up in the polls? 
I'm not sure actually where she stands right now. We'll, I think we'll, that she we'll had seen a little people, bump. Yeah, we'll have some people check that and uh, and get back to people uh, on that. Lastly, then uh, we have at least one thing in common: we're both partisans for poor Julian, uh, unable to uh, see the sky again because he's in Belmarsh prison. What can you tell us about how the feeling is in the United States? Poor Chelsea Manning is still behind bars uh, for refusing to uh, testify against Julian. Uh, how, how do you feel? Is, is opinion waking up to the grave importance of this case? It seemed for a minute that people were finally understanding how important this is, not just for him, but for themselves. Like journalists in the U.S. finally seemed to start to get it. And then as soon as they announced that the trial or the um, the trial won't be until February, it kind of lost media steam. People stopped talking about it. It's been really hard to get people to continue speaking out. They're, they're just kind of complacent and quiet about it, this is the um, which British, is a shame. The British trial in February, the extradition the, trial. Yeah. So people have thought it's in the long grass kind of thing. And Julian, meanwhile, wastes away in Belmarsh. Yep. I haven't seen hardly any discussion of him in mainstream media since they, the last hearing. What about Chelsea Manning? Now, on the face of it, all the liberals and the pussy hats and the, the feminists and all, you'd think they'd be uh, really rattling uh, the cages of the U.S. justice system about this woman again being behind bars, having already served her sentence uh, and being fined five hundred a day on top of being incarcerated. Is, is there no one speaking up for Chelsea Manning? No, it's been very quiet. I mean, they, they're, it's like they just forgot about her. They, the news cycle moves so quickly now that people talk about things for a minute and then they just forget about it. Mm. Meanwhile, she's running away in prison for refusing to testify against her publisher. It, it's insane. Um, I think that the media, by by being silent about this kind of stuff, they're hammering nails into their own coffins because the rights that they give up right now are going to stay gone. And, you know, we see Trump going after reporters constantly saying that they're not news, that they're not media. And this will be used, you know, this president that's being set by Julian's case can be used against them later. If the government can decide who is press, who is not, and you know, put whistleblowers in prison for refusing to testify against a news outlet. This is a very, very dangerous, Indeed. dangerous precedent. Indeed so. Cassandra Fairbanks from Gateway Pundit. Many thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, what do you think of that? What do you think of the Democratic Party candidates? 02077-982-255 or tweet at George Galloway, at RTUK, uh, at RT News, uh, any of these. And, of course, Skype me, as Cassandra just did, at GG Motes. We'll be talking uh, to uh, Kevin Marr in the second hour about the Chris Williamson case and what's happening to him as a cipher, really, for uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Because I didn't see it earlier, but maybe because I thought it was obvious. The target is not really Chris Williamson, a backbench MP with no great political future ahead of him. Here's a cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The target is Jeremy Corbyn to try and stop Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister of Britain. The first ever anti-war, anti-imperialist Prime Minister of Britain. That's not a small thing. And you see in the G20 and in the EU and in NATO and so on, the kind of things that just one person standing up and saying no can achieve. If it can't do much positively, it can be a spanner in the works. It can bring all kinds of things crashing uh, to a halt. I think we've got Kevin on the line now. Uh, Kevin, the, it was a bad week for Labour, wasn't it? It was. It's, it's never a good week when um, you, you've got a government that's um, on the ropes. We've got no prime minister really in place. We've got, a, we've, we've, got a, we've got a lame duck or a dead duck as prime minister at the moment, just filling space in Downing Street. We've got a, 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 a quite bitter um, contest between um, Boris Johnson and uh, Jeremy Hunt to, to replace her. Um, all eyes should be on the Conservative Party and, and, the, and the fantastical positions that they've got on everything from Brexit to public spending at the moment. And instead of that, um, we've got a Labour Party process story um, dominating you know, parts of the news agenda at a time when we could be weeks away from a general election. So, so um, it's not a good place for the Labour Party to find itself in. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very good chance, as I say, that in September or October we have a general election in this country with so much at stake and so, so much to, to, to play for. And yet um, here we are with, with um, another week where, where Labour's um, internecine problems, internecine feuding um, becomes the dominant story. Well, we'll come back to that story, uh, but let me throw another one in. Uh, the Rupert Murdoch uh, vehicle, The Times, once the paper of record in this country, now really just a tabloid uh, itself, uh, came up with a very damaging story, uh, if true, uh, that Jeremy Corbyn was increasingly frail, too old, physically and mentally frail. They claimed that he had had a stroke and they quoted, not by name of course, senior civil servants as the source or sources of this story. What can you tell us about that? I mean, it's a fairly, it's a fairly disgusting smear to, when you start to play um, the health of, of leading politicians um, as, as a shorthand for their competence or worthiness in public office. Um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is, is around the 70 mark. Historically, of course, this is not a very old age 
for, uh, for, 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 for um, British statesmen. Um, Bernie Sanders is fighting uh, 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 Joe Biden uh, to fight Donald Trump, <laughs> and all, all of them are almost 80. Exactly. You know, 70 is the new 60. You know, Clement Attlee was 62 when he, when he, of course, became prime minister in 1945, led the great Labour coalition government that got more done in five or six years than, than many governments would, would do if they had the chance for over 30 years. So, so it's, his age is an irrelevance. Um, it's, it, what, he, what he wants to do as prime minister or what, what he wants to do in terms of leading government, that's legitimate um, that's legitimate terrain for people to criticise and critique. That's absolutely fine. But I think when you start to play the man, not the ball, then I think it's, it's very dangerous. We saw this a little bit, of course, with, with Angela Merkel and her, her um, the, the incidents, two incidents of her shaking, apparently, public, public, public events over the, last, over the last couple of weeks. And again, it doesn't, it, it doesn't speak to her competence and her and, 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 uh, suitability for office. If, if people have got... Health issues, well, frankly, that's, I think that's private business unless it intrudes into, into, into their general competence, and I, I, I don't think it does. And I think what we're seeing here is, is again, a, a sort of an attempt to pick up on Jeremy Corbyn, the person, and try and undermine his integrity. As I say, cognizant that we are potentially a few weeks away from a general election. So I think you've got to see these, these kinds of stories and these kinds of criticisms for, for what they are. They are incredibly loaded. Um, given given the times that we're in, mm. um, you know we we are you know we are in uncharted political territory in so many different ways. I mean, the, the fact that we may have a prime minister and you know in the, in the, around the 70 mark and, and what have you is 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 almost gloriously irrelevant, given given all the other issues that the country the country faces. But as a general as a general point, um, I think we're going to have to get used to the fact that we're going to see party leaders um, much older than we've perhaps been used to over the last 20 or 30 years when if people haven't peaked in their early 40s then you know, they've, they've almost left it too late and I think we've, we've now reached the point of saying um, we've had um, prime ministers of, of, a, of a tender of a tender vintage if I can put it like that um, and they, they often leave, leave us in a big mess so actually perhaps age comes with wisdom and with wisdom comes fewer mistakes. Well, I'm all in favour of that analysis, uh, Kevin. Um, the, uh, the, the thing about young leaders, of course, is you have to put up with them for a very long time after they've left office. Uh, and they, that can be very embarrassing indeed. Your friend and mine, Tony Blair, springs to mind. But Barack Obama maybe uh, also. I saw him uh, in a chateau in France uh, for his holidays at 35,000 uh, euros per night. Nice if you can get it. I mean, I mean, of course, we've got David Cameron sat in his shed. I right forgot there. about him. Of course, in his, in his, his late 40s, and, and, and there's, there's nobody, of course, anymore got a good word to say about, about the chap. Yeah. Tony Blair made the remark, I think, a few weeks ago, George, about that actually he, 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 he felt that if he'd have become prime minister at the age he's at now, he would have been far better at it than the age he was Very at. Very interesting. Very interesting. We can leave that point there. But of course... You know, the, the idea that you know everything and, and you are, you know, wise enough to, you know, to deal with the, the problems of, of the country and of the world um, in your early 40s is, is, I think, will be seen as, as kind of heroically arrogant in years to come when we actually return to wisdom and, and people having put long, long years into public service before they, they aspire to these highest offices. Amen to that. Um, Amen to that. Let's, let's, uh, Kevin, let, let's go back to this process story. 
Um, yeah. Conscious of the fact that this is an international audience now listening across the world, yeah. it burst on the uh, news uh, rather unexpectedly. Certainly I did not expect it, and neither did Chris Williamson. Uh, nobody informed him, in fact, that he had been readmitted. He was readmitted uh, on the advice of uh, two barristers and a QC, uh, who, as it happens, all three of them were themselves Jewish. Uh, there was a, a subcommittee, an obscure subcommittee of a committee, of a bigger committee, uh, that opined and decided uh, to reinstate uh, Chris Williamson back into the Labour Party. Now, uh, with all due respect to Jeremy Corbyn, I would argue that this is not a local matter. Uh, this is a nationally strategic matter, and not one that you can palm off to a subcommittee of a subcommittee. Uh, and I, I rather think the whole thing, whatever view you take on Williamson, and I've nailed my colours to the mast earlier in the show, the whole thing was handled really badly. Oh, de definitely so, absolutely, definitely. Um, I think what's driven this is, um, is, is a very sort of peculiar piece of housework, if you like, for the, for the Labour Party, which is the, the party's written to all its sitting MPs um, whether they wish to um, fight the next general election. As a, and as I say, we could be talking weeks away. Yeah. Um, or whether they wish to retire, in which case there's obviously got to be a process, a democratic process, to select a new candidate for the seats that they currently hold. Because, of course, what happened in 2017 is that the election was, was kind of bounced on everybody. And, and what happened often in the Labour Party is instead of a proper full process where members decide who their candidate's going to be for the various 650 parliamentary seats, instead of that, they were, candidates were, were bounced into seats because there wasn't enough time. So it's, it's perfectly logical to, to have this process now and to ask sitting MPs whether they wish to carry on or, which, or whether they don't. And I think what's happened is that process has caught Chris Williamson up and probably some of the other MPs that, that have been um, that, 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 that have perhaps suspended but not not expelled from the Labour Party. And there are other people in that category, along with Chris Williamson. So mm. I suspect what's happened is that in a, in a spirit of housekeeping, they 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 they've tried to sort out, um, in particularly in Chris Williamson's case, can they can they resolve it, bring you back in, and then asking this question and, and and what have you. So so I think that's that's what's driven it. Um, and of course, what's happened is that, it's, as you say, it's, it's resulted in this significant backlash from members of the parliamentary Labour Party, the MPs, Labour MPs, and members of the House of Lords as well, who've, who've opposed his re-entry. And of course, you're right. I mean, everything I've read, Chris Williamson didn't know anything about this. And then there's been this, this reaction against any prospect of him coming back in. So the suspension has been reimposed, which is, you know, it's a slightly farcical procedure. Um, given this all plays out, of course, in public. And we're now waiting for something called the Labour Party's Disputes Committee, which, um, which, which is a very, very uh, slightly Orwellian um, kind, kind, of, kind of body mm. to adjudicate finally on whether Chris Williamson can return to the fold as a Labour MP and, and, or whether he has to uh, stay, on, stay on the outside or not. But, you know, it, it is very totemic in, in lots of ways. I mean, I, I've, I've thought... I've, you know, I followed Chris Williamson's case, and I don't know Chris Williamson personally. Um, I've, I've engaged with him lots of times on social media over the years. I find Chris Williamson a, a very earnest man. Um, has he been lax in some of his phrases? 
possibly. Is he a raving anti-Semite? No, he isn't. Should he be readmitted to the Labour Party? Yes, he should. Um, I think we're in a very strange position in British politics where we start to limit the views and the voices that we can have in, in political parties because, you know, when you look back historically, you know, when people like the Stafford Cripps, who was the, chance, the, the radical chancellor of the Exchequer in the Attlee government, Oh, what a pity. I, I'm a big fan of Stafford Cripps. Uh, go, go back, go back, go back, uh, please, Kevin, to what you were saying about Stafford Cripps, a man I'm very interested in. Oh, sorry, sorry George, what did you just say Yeah, we, we, we lost you momentarily. If you go back to the Stafford Cripps point. Yeah, well, Stafford Cripps and Niren Bevan, great figures in the post-war Labour government, both of them were expelled from the Labour Party in 1939 for advocating... You know, I, I, I sort of, I, I sort of um, popular uh, fronts. Yes, a popular front with with other left wing parties. So, so we've got to be very careful in British politics. It's we we base the system on on a centre right party in the Conservatives and a centre left party in in Labour that agglomerates huge swathes of political opinion. There are people within both of the two main parties who, frankly, hate each other's guts and stand for very very different things. But it's important that the space for all of them to coexist. And I think if you start getting into the business of snipping off sections of opinion because some other people don't like it, then what you do is, 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 is limit the appeal of these great political parties and you open up space on the flank for, for new movements to, to come in and, 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 and emerge. And that's very, very dangerous for Labour. So, so I think Chris Williamson, I think, I think, as I say, I think he's been lax in some of his phraseology. I think that, that's certainly the case. I don't think he's an anti-Semite at all. Um, I, think, I think Chris Williamson is, 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 is a true believer in, 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 in the Corbyn project. He's a party loyalist. Um, and he's said things that he thinks are in the spirit of, of being, being loyal to the party. And I think that, that there is certainly a section of, of opinion in the Labour Party. And I don't want to just characterise it as bitter Blairites or people on the right. I, I think these, these terms are a bit, a bit bland these days. But there are certainly people who will look at any opportunity to undermine Jeremy Corbyn and his mandate. And I think all that does is to sour relations in the party to the point that the very, very future of the Labour Party comes into question. And I think we've got to find the habit of coexisting again, where people who, who may have different views from others, um, that doesn't require them to be expunged from, from the party, because if that happens... You know, it's the end of days for, for a large political party under the first past the post system. And, and, and something very similar is going on in the Conservative Party as well, where, where the, there's got to be room for people to agree to disagree. And I think if you start to limit that space, then all you do is limit the political ground that you hold and open up space for others to come in on, 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 your, on, on the fringes. Um, so so I, think, I think the best thing Labour can do is, is try and get past this point um, and readmit Chris Williamson, and I think there's lots of lessons to be learned. Does the Labour Party have a problem with anti-Semitism? In part, yes. I think it's overstated, but clearly the Equalities and Human Rights Commission thinks there's an issue. Does the wider left have a problem with anti-Semitism? Yes, I think it does. But wider left is not necessarily the Labour Party. I think what's happened very often is, is, is media... And people have taken a view that lots of people on Twitter may have said things, well, they're all Jeremy Corbyn supporters, aren't they? They're all members of the Labour Party, aren't they? And they're not. They're just not. And I think Jeremy Corbyn and his team have failed, really, to set some context around 
look, we, we're not responsible for every anonymous account on Twitter that, that, that propagates some anti-Semitic trope. That's not, that's not, you know, we don't have a competence to police the whole of social media. We're responsible for people who are representatives of the Labour Party and members of the Labour Party, and we can deal with those people. But the wider people in the landscape, they're nothing to do with us. And unfortunately, what happens is all of that gets rolled into a general critique of, of anti-Semitism and Jeremy Corbyn's response to it. And, you know, that's just where we are, I think, often with um, the impact of social media on contemporary politics. One of the things that makes me suspicious, though, Kevin, is that Bernie Sanders, himself Jewish, is under precisely the same kind of attack as Jeremy Corbyn is. Uh, how someone like Sanders, with all these decades in politics, and with his Jewish culture, if not uh, religious faith, I'm, I'm not sure that he is a religious man, but he's clearly culturally Jewish. He's from a Jewish heritage. But he's being attacked in almost word for word the same terms uh, that Corbyn is, when in fact, isn't it true that both of them are guilty, if guilty is the word, of merely being sometimes rebarbative supporters of the Palestinian cause? I think, I think that's very true. I think that's very fair. That, that, that the, 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 it becomes a zero-sum equation, unfortunately. But to, to be pro-Palestinian, to, to, to deprecate um, the policies and attitudes of successive Israeli governments in terms of their attitudes and the treatment of Palestinian people um, makes you anti-Semitic. And, and we, we've, got to, we've got to delineate these points, I think, very clearly. And, of course, language matters and nuance matters, and lots of people blunder over, over, over some of these lines. But I think that we, need to, we need to delineate um, the, 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 a legitimate critique of, of Israeli government policy, and the policies of Netanyahu and, and the treatment of Palestinian civilians and, and be very, very clear in deprecating a lot, a, lot, a lot of that without drifting over into a wider critique of, of Jewish people and Jewish culture. And I think some people on the left have been guilty of that. I don't say that about Chris Williamson necessarily, and I don't say that necessarily about other people who have been, uh, have been criticised for being anti-Semitic. I think, I think there is a perfectly legitimate critique that is often not amplified um, in the way that it should be by mainstream politics to say, look, there are lots of people in Israeli politics that, that, that are, are liberal and progressive and want to, want, to, want to proper dialogue and we want to get back to that mood of optimism perhaps from the mid-1990s around, around where, where, this, where this may, may go. We need to support these people in Israel as well. So it's not about just being anti-Israeli or anti-Jewish. It's about being very specific that Netanyahu... Uh, they called the right wing of Israeli politics, which, which, which just has no interest at all in any kind of just settlement. These, these are the areas where we need to be really specific in our criticisms and look for allies, even within Israeli politics, to help make that, to help make that push. Now, they're thin on the um, ground uh, these days. The ones were far are, more, uh, far yeah, more plentiful. Kevin, finally, and I'm grateful for your time, I'm trying to get a copy of your book for uh, someone. Tell us... How we get hold of it? Oh, now it's, it's available, as you say, in all good bookshops. I think it's, in, it's on the high street in, in the Waterstones and places like that. But okay. It's also on Amazon as well. But I'll, I'll have to send you a copy. No, no, I'm not uh, angling for a free copy. I want to encourage people to buy it. 
What's it called again, exactly? It, it, it's called the United Ireland, uh, Why Unification is Inevitable and How It Will Come About. And it's a fantastic read. Kevin Marr, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Oh, my goodness, it's, it's Bill Bradshaw. Bill Bradshaw. It's, Bill Bradshaw it's, it's Bill Bradshaw. It's no ordinary <laughs> caller. Now, listen, Bill, Bye, I'm sorry about last week. We just couldn't get round to it. So frantic was our first show, so busy. So please accept my apologies. And I will be with you at Planet Hollywood tomorrow uh, for, the, uh, for the launch, and I'm looking forward to it very much indeed. I've now read your estimable book, Bob Dylan at the Isle of Wight Festival 1969. So I know the answer to this question, but not everybody yet does. Tell us, how did Bob Dylan get tangled up in the Isle of Wight? Yes, uh, it's a good question, George. And the, the answer to that is, it was simply by the um, sheer front and ambition of three young brothers on the island who uh, decided that they wanted to do a pop, pop festival in 1968, which they did. They managed to get a decent headline act in Jefferson Airplane, and they thought at the end of 1968, summer, how can we do better? And their uh, solution to that was simply staring them in the face when one of the brothers bought another of the brothers a, uh, a Bob Dylan album, John Wesley Harding. I remember and it well. They, I remember buying it at the time, actually. That's it. And I'll even tell you the price. It was 26 shillings and sixpence. Oh, pre-decimal, wonderful. It was pre-decimal, yes. Yeah. And so they decided the biggest star in the world who would uh, pack the people in on the Isle of Wight, get them over from the mainland, was the biggest drawer in the world, Bob Dylan. And they had the, uh, the ambition to ask the question, would you come out of what was, for Dylan at that time, semi-retirement in terms of performing and, uh, and play on the Isle of Wight. He hadn't and, uh, performed they, for, what, three years before that? More than three years. Really? As, as you, you, know, uh, you know George is a, a Dylan fan, I think, that he'd had a motorcycle yes. accident in New, in, in New England. And uh, the suggestion was that he'd actually broken his neck. Yes. And he, and he didn't perform to any degree at all for the next three and a bit years. He did the odd uh, TV show with Johnny Cash. Um, but no festival performances, no concert performances even for three and a half years until he played at the Isle of Wight. And the amazing thing is, George, that uh, the organisers, the, the Folk Brothers, Ray, Bill and Ronnie Folk, had no idea that at the same time Woodstock was being organised <laughs> under Bob Dylan's nose, you know, virtually where he lived in New England. But Dylan knew. He obviously didn't want to go to Woodstock. No, he, he was, um, he, he felt affronted by the, uh, the expectation by the Woodstock organizers, Michael Lang and Co., that he would come out and play on, on his doorstep. And uh, he said, no, you're invading my space. Um, Woodstock at that time was a bit of an artistic uh, recluse for writers, poets, painters. And um, he didn't like the invasion of his personal space. And he thought, no, I'm going to go and play on the Isle of Wight. Do you think he even knew where the Isle of Wight was? Because even I would find difficulty putting a pin <laughs> in the map. 
Well, they made sure, the brothers made sure that he knew because they sent him um, what at the time was a pretty sophisticated uh, pack, if you like, an invitation to come and play on the Isle of Wight with all the details of the uh, the writers who'd made the Isle of Wight their home, such as uh, such as Keats and various other people, and um, the delights of Osborne House. And this tickled Dylan, and um, they also threw in a holiday with a, a, a manor house and a governess for their children, for the Dylan children, and um, they, they they took the bait. Well, I mean, I've just watched. In fact, I've now watched it three times the Rolling Thunder review on, on Netflix. Yes. And in yes. that uh, review, uh, which toured uh, the entire country and beyond in the end, um, he also went to what, with all respect to Isle of Wight people, uh, he also went to obscure places with that, obscure in the sense that people were asking in the street, why has he come here? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it was an extraordinary to get Dylan to play, you know, on this lump of rock in the middle of the English Channel. Um, and uh, therein lies the sense of ambition by the Folk Brothers. Fantastic, it's all, yeah. It's reaching for the want, stars, if we, yeah. If, yeah, if we want to sell out, if we want to drag people over this, uh, you know, the, the strip of water called the Soul and, and get a big crowd in, we need the biggest man, the biggest star in the world. And they did that, and they got 150,000 people, which at the time, in 1969, was the, the biggest festival in the UK. Wow. 150,000 on the Isle of Wight. Now, I, look, yeah, I've, got, a, I've got the book I've got the book here. Yeah, there's only 100,000 people live there. Yeah, that's right, that's right. That's I, I, right. There obviously wasn't enough hotels or uh, even camping <laughs> places. How did, what did people do? Well, um, this is the thing. I think that because of the uh, the effort to get across to the island, it became the first camping festival. Yeah. And the organisers had the foresight to, you know, acquire an extra field, which they de decreed as the camping grounds. Okay. And uh, they, they had they had bars and uh, drinks, and it was the first camping festival in the UK. Long before Glastonbury, uh, and long I'd, before. I'd rather have been at this one. It's an absolutely <laughs> beautiful book, beautifully produced. The artwork, the photographs, uh, absolutely terrific, Bill. It's a credit to you and uh, everyone else involved. Now, 50 years on, you're remembering it with this special Isle of Wight Festival this year. Tell us. Yes, uh, I'm also part of a group called All White Now. It's a, it's a pun, obviously, it's a on good the pun, song, yeah. of, song of the time. Um, but uh, we're having a, a festival, a wonderful festival called Million Dollar Bash to honour the 1969 Bob Dylan Festival. And it's on Saturday, August the 31st. And tomorrow we're having a London media launch for the, uh, for the bash. Uh, and at the bash, we will have uh, some fine uh, acts such as uh, uh, Richard Thompson, who's a folk rock legend, mm -hmm. Wishbone Ash for the Rockers. Wow! Uh, we've got we've got Ashley Hutchings from uh, Fairport Convention, who's putting together a Dylan-centric all-star folk band, folk rock band. Um, we've also got uh, well-known uh, acts such as uh, Julie Felix, the Pretty Things. Both of those act played the in pretty 1969. Things. Wow. And, um, and Julie... And, they were um, far from pretty then. What do they yeah. look like now? 
<laughs> but they're not so pretty these days, George. <laughs> uh, but we've also got uh, Jackie Maxey's Pentangle, who are another act Pentangle, from the 69, yeah. the 69 bill as well. Um, so we've got a really good cross-section. We've also got a fantastic young rising talent called uh, Dina Walmsley, who was the runner-up uh, in this year's um, series of The Voice on ITV. Okay. And she, uh, she is a really, really talented young performer. And um, she, she's going to be actually singing a couple of songs at uh, our press launch at Planet Hollywood in London tomorrow. I'm looking forward uh, to that. Uh, 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 you wouldn't tell me if you had, but the, the thought occurs. Would it not be worth a sneaky wee try to get Bob to come back for the 50th anniversary? Wouldn't it be wonderful? We, we know he's playing, obviously, with Neil Young um, uh, next month in Hyde Park, but he knows, he's aware of us. He is aware of us, and... Uh, the door is wide open. We can't afford his normal rate, but if Bob wants to get in touch and you know even pop along and uh, and and sing in the bar, uh, right. we'd love to have we'd love to have him. Well, there. he can send a video <laughs> if he's watching now. He can send a video message uh, at least, maybe play a few bars. The thing about Dylan is he's completely unpredictable, as this whole story shows. Yeah. he's yeah. as capable of performing every night as he is of not performing for years, because it was three and a half years uh, by the time he came out on the stage at the Isle of Wight. He hadn't been on a stage for three and a half years, but he wasn't on another stage for some years after that. You're right, George. He didn't play after the Isle of Wight in terms of a regular advertised concert performance by him didn't appear again for another four years. So the wow. Isle of Wight Festival, it was this extraordinary island in, in a sort of barren sea of non-performing. He did the odd thing around about it. He, he did uh, George Harrison's concert for Bangladesh, of course, when he came on stage and played a few songs. But in terms of Bob Dylan actually, you know, having a concert performance anywhere, the Isle of Wight was the only one in seven long years. Well, look, as a, as a man who loves Tangled Up in Blue, I'm glad he got Tangled Up in White at the Isle of yeah. Wight. And I wish the very best to the All White Now uh, concert. Uh, August 31st, you say? August the 31st, uh, at, uh, it's near Cows, the county showground on the Isle of Wight. And tickets are available on our website, allwhitenow.com. That's W-I-G-H-T. That's W-I-G-H-T. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow, Bill. Many thanks indeed. And congratulations on a superb piece of work uh, in the book. I'm really grateful uh, that you signed a copy for me. See you tomorrow, Bill. Okay, it's uh, tweets from Clara Mancia. What about, you can also not deny the ongoing racial cleansing of Palestinians and their Holocaust, or we can call you anti-Semite. The Palestinians being also Semites. But you can uh, talk about the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. One of my uh, good friends, the uh, Israeli professor Ilan Pape, has written a whole book about it. He might actually even have done it with Noam Chomsky, the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. It's not a crime to state that the uh, area that was Palestine has been ethnically cleansed. It's merely common sense. Valkyrie, too perfected, says, George, I disagree 
about criminalizing Holocaust denial. It's an attack against free speech and freedom of thought and expression. When the illegal terrorist entity that steals land by genocide... No, look, I'm sorry. The Palestinian people have been subjected to an historic injustice. They have been cleared off their land. Their country has been wiped off the map. Hundreds of thousands, now millions, of their people have been scattered to the four corners of the earth. But they have not been subject to genocide. This is not a word that should be tossed around. Genocide means an attempt to literally annihilate every last person in the group that you are talking about. Now, the injustice against the Palestinian people cannot be underestimated, but it must not be overstated. Otherwise, Israel would be building death camps in the West Bank and systematically annihilating Palestinians in it. They are not doing so. So for God's sake, stop saying that. Sean Alleman says half the people rounded up for denying the Holocaust haven't even done so per se. You can question, you can't question any of it, despite it being a massive and very complex. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Plex, genocide, and Veggie Cray, what a wonderful name, says, I'm really fed up of all this. His opinion should be banned, but mine is okay. Stuff that seems to be in fashion. Tolerance is needed by everybody. And Jack says, top show, top host, truth, radio. I like to think so, Jack, and I'm glad you agree. It's the mother of all talk shows. You've got 40 minutes still to call me. Let's take a break. Coming soon to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to the Moats Podcast. Now, you'll know already, if you're a regular viewer, that I'm very proud to have played a part in the downfall of Robert Maxwell. The fraud that he was, it's been 30 years since Robert Maxwell fell or jumped or was pushed off the back of his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine. Ghislaine Maxwell, whatever happened to her? Now, look, this podcast will be released at 10 p.m., on Sunday, the 13th of February. But if you want exclusive access to the whole series in video form, you can do it right now. And you'll be able to see every episode three weeks before the podcast is released. So here's how you do it. You click over to my Patreon, sign up and support my channel right now. Search patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. But this is just the start. We've got so many plans for my Patreon page. I'm really genuinely excited about it. So uh, you'll be able to 
not just listen to uh, my book about the 1970s, but hear me discussing the music, the films, the, the, the culture, the politics uh, of the 1970s. You'll be able to do that. But perhaps most importantly, I discovered a treasure trove of video of all the speeches I made in the run-up to the Iraq war. Some of you might even have been at those meetings. It's really weird looking back at them, what I looked like 20 years ago, what you looked like in the audience 20 years ago. You might very well want to see yourself at those meetings. Now, the cleverest man in England has joined me. I'm very careful to say England because, well, I just got back from Scotland and there are very clever people there too. <laughs> Adam Gary, uh, welcome back. Let me uh, ask you this one first. Uh, Compamaros sends the tweet. The Holodomor, complete nonsense. Tell people what is the Holodomor. Well, it depends on who you ask. In the early 1940s, particularly around 34, there was a Soviet famine. And the reason for that Soviet famine was that the creditors of the Soviet Union that uh, needed to be paid back stopped refusing hard currency. And this left the USSR with little choice but to pay in grain. So when grain becomes currency rather than foodstuffs, it creates a famine, especially with all the other chaos and with the malfunction feasance going on and so it was one pot um it was one part the fault of the creditors who put the USSR in a bind and another fault of the USSR, not for anything ethnically or ethno-linguistically motivated, but simply poor management. But there is a strain of thought among Ukrainian nationalists who think that ethnic Ukrainians were specifically targeted for starvation during that famine. But when you look at the actual facts, there were people that were horribly affected by that very real famine in multiple parts of the Soviet Union and almost all of the ethnic groups that comprise the very multicultural Soviet Union were affected. But this is one of the examples of people using history as a way to control the present rather than simply reflect on the past. Now, uh, uh, at least one uh, regular who's been following me a very long time uh, is cross with you uh, <laughs> about your politics. I'm not sure where she gets off on trying to police other people's politics or uh, where she imagines she might get uh, uh, media uh, that was less uh, antipathetic to her point of view. Quite. Uh, I'm not sure that there is any uh, in existence. Uh, but uh, just tell us, um, I think she was upset because you're not a Labour supporter. But you've That's been right. clear from the beginning that you are not a socialist. Indeed, you are a centrist. No but you just define centrism differently to uh, the kind of uh, charlatans who call themselves centrists in today's political spectrum. Well, quite right, because centrism, in its true essence, it means problem-solving in a way that reflects the needs and the will of the majority while looking for ethical solutions to those with minority viewpoints and minority positions in society, particularly the economic minorities, which are just about the only minorities that we never hear about. We never hear about Speaking them, of no. which, everyone has a Pride Week, a History Month, etc., but there's no working-class Pride Month. 
month. There's no working class history month. Why is it that the great reform bill of 1867, which for the first time gave some working class men the right to vote, why isn't that commemorated the way that so many other events are? That's an aside. That's one of the well, many things. It's a very things. important aside. It, it is, and it's one of the big problems I have with identity politics, one of the, one of the many problems I have with it. But going back to centrism, centrism is not liberalism, and liberalism is not centrism. Unfortunately, a lot of the most virulent, extreme varieties of liberals in Europe, in North America, call themselves centrists when they're really not. Lee Kuan Yew was a centrist. Mahathir Mohammed was, and still is, at the age of 93, I believe he is now, yeah. indeed, a centrist. Dong Xiaoping, forgetting he was a communist in name, in many ways he was a centrist. And Ataturk, in many ways, was a centrist also. So when you look at the great centrist leaders, for me, it means getting things done without ideological baggage. And that's the antithesis of the liberalism masquerading behind so-called centrism that we see today. Now, talking of uh, regimes that last a long time, uh, what did you make of Trump's uh, walk across the uh, the DMZ today. I, I was very happy with it myself. Well, I woke up quite early on a Sunday to see it, knowing that something was going to happen that was going to be interesting. And I have to say, tears of joy literally burned my eyes mm. when I was watching that, because the war in Korea, the forgotten war as it's known in the United States, but it was in its own microcosmic way more deadly in terms of the firepower, the quality of the firepower being used than the Second World War. Uh, all of Pyongyang, every city in North Korea was destroyed. Thousands upon thousands of men, young men, sent to their graves on all sides needlessly to keep a same people, a homogenous people, living on a medium-sized peninsula apart. And to now see the leader of South Korea, the President of the United States, and the Chairman of the DPRK of North Korea, all standing in the Truce Village, smiling and to see the President of the United States walking into the DPRK beside a smiling Kim Jong-un, I honestly think that the people who don't have a recollection of that forgotten war have underestimated the weight of this occasion. This is a moment on par with the events that set in motion the crumbling of the Berlin Wall. And as I've said before, I'm more convinced now than ever before, there will be peace in Korea, there will be cooperation between North and South, there is no going back no more than there's an any chance that the Berlin Wall will be re-erected. <clears throat> a lot of uh, critics have emerged, most of them playing party politics, but some of them in the Republican Party uh, also. <clears throat> Overwhelming criticism in the US media, which is of course controlled by people who are, uh, I think, irreconcilably hostile to President Trump. So he took a big risk uh, doing it. He takes a lot of big risks. Yes. Why does he do that? Well, all three of those leaders that were there today are men of destiny. Moon Jae-in was a man of peace who had his election literally, and it's all in the open now, literally stolen from him in 2012 by the South Korean version of the CIA so they could put in uh, Park Win-hee, the son of, uh, the daughter of Park Chung-hee. That uh, ended well. <laughs> and she's in, in prison. in prison. <laughs> Quite right. And so Moon was a man who held fast, and in 2018, the man of peace got in, and the woman of war is 
is in prison. Donald Trump, whatever one might think of him, is a man of destiny. He changed the way American leadership looks, speaks, acts, and his levels of unpredictability, the organized chaos, what portion is organized, what portion is chaos, maybe we'll never know. He's a man of destiny. He defeated the Clinton war machine, which is in many ways the most justified victory an American president has had since 1945. And finally, there's Kim Jong-un, the youngest ever head of state to take over a nuclear-armed nation, one of the youngest men to ever become a head of state in the modern age. And he was someone who was, he came onto the scene wrapped in mystery, a riddle inside the enigma and the rest of it. And now he's a man that is giving answers to the press at press conferences. He's a man who's been described by the South Koreans as humorous and self-deprecating. And most importantly, he's a man making speeches about artificial intelligence, about economic reform, about peace rather than hostility with the former enemies of his country. All three of these men were men of destiny. And that little walk, only a few feet though it was, it was truly one small step for Trump and Kim, but one giant leap for world peace. That's a good point to take a break. We are above all the latest developments, and we don't take any sides. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. What's the most important hour of the day? It's the Critical Hour with Dr. Wilmer Leon. On this show, we don't just deliver the latest headlines. We divide the real from the fake. Tune in to hear from some of the most brilliant political minds of today. Get in-depth news and analysis that goes beyond the surface and dig straight into the details. Set your clock to the critical hour for a news perspective unlike any of those other guys. Tune in to the critical hour with Dr. Wilmer Leon. Weekdays, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern. And catch us on Facebook Live. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. By any means necessary is your guide to the movement and efforts shaping the world around us from mass incarceration. No longer am I interested in or concerned with prison reform. I am interested only in the eradication of prisons. To the battle between police and water protectors. It was a pretty punishing disregard for the sanctity of human life that unleashing water cannons on peaceful, prayerful water protectors. From efforts to protect the environment. The climate movement is ready to, with plenty of opposition research and force and strength, along with, you know, the right of both science and morality to fight them on this. To the movement for black lives. When I first saw the Michael Brown video and I saw that it clearly contradicted the narrative put forth uh, by the Ferguson Police Department and by police supporters in general, three words came to mind. Color me shocked. Stay tuned to By Any Means Necessary, five days a week here on Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Monday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker for our regular segment, Education for Liberation with Bill Ayers, where we take a look at the state of education across the country. What's happening in our schools, colleges, and universities, and what impact does it have on the world around us? Our resident expert is Bill Ayers, the legendary activist, educator, and author. Tune in to Loud and Clear this Monday and every Monday for Education for Liberation with Bill Ayers. 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. We give you the most essential information out there. Radio Sputnik, telling the untold. The mother of all talk shows is back. Unleashed, unabridged, uncensored, and unbelievable. Only on Sputnik Radio. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. Well, Ask Adam is in full flow, but there's so little time, so much to ask him. <laughs> Joe Public asks a good question, but before I give it to you, let me just paint the backdrop. Theresa May met President Putin at the G20. She contrived to be as graceless as was humanly, physically possible. As someone wrote, she had a face on that uh, someone would have if their blind date turned out to be something of a disappointment. It was uh, the, the sink, the pits of lack of diplomacy. And I don't know if President Putin was too polite to ask her, but let me ask you, as Joe Public is asking, where are the scripples? Because if I was President Putin and saw the way she was behaving, I'd have said, by the way, Yulia Skripal is a Russian citizen. Where is she? I demand that you tell me. Mm. Well, before we get to them, the short answer is no one, at least no one who can say, is willing to say, and I certainly don't know where they are. But getting back to the disappointment that was Theresa May at the G20, she had one thing to do. You had one bloody job. And that was when she's in a room with the president of the US, with the president of China, the prime minister of Japan, the prime minister of India, president of Turkey, president of Russia, you're supposed to be doing trade deals with these people. You're supposed to be setting the preliminary stage for post-Brexit FTAs. And what did she do instead? She scowled and hectored Putin like a, like a curmudgeonly schoolmistress. And then she did a smiling photo op with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, whom public opinion in Britain is somewhat turning against. So it wasn't a very good look either way. And so the two countries that actually have the least potential to do a fully-fledged free trade deal with Britain she spoke to and the countries that want to do an FTA the countries that should the countries that could she maybe she poured sugar in their tea or something like that to stick with the schoolmistress metaphor but she really blew it she had one job and she failed ah, well uh, she's uh, generally failed at most uh, uh, jobs yeah. that she has had let's take some callers then right up to the end of the hour next caller please Ah, unfortunately, uh, the, the baton was, uh, was uh, dropped there. Uh, Pat Brannigan says, I'm still a bit confused about British politics. Williamson is suspended from the party. Does that mean he cannot stand for election as an independent? Well, of course he can stand as an independent, but he was elected uh, relatively narrowly as a Labour MP. Uh, he hasn't, from my point of view, and from Kevin Marr's <coughs> point of view, uh, adumbrated earlier, uh, done anything that justifies being uh, pushed uh, out of the Labour Party. Why should he stand as an independent? Let's, have we got that caller? <clears throat> yes, hello caller. Hello? Yes, you're on the air, go ahead. You're, the whole world is listening. 
Hello. Yes, go on, speak up. Is that... It's not who I think it is. I think it's I know It's the legend it is. that is Norma. Can she be properly introduced, please? Don't put a legend through to me without announcing her in advance. This is the legend, Norma, from Bristol. Norma, welcome. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, the whole world's listening to you. Go ahead. Oh, it's, e it's echoing terribly. It's beautiful. Your voice oh. sounds exactly... Oh, come on. <laughs> Norma, it's quintessential Norma. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. Hello, Adam. Hi, Norma. Good to hear from you. Um, I'm still alive. Well, we're the, all very happy about that. <laughs> it's just a um, couple of things, actually. One is about Jeremy Corbyn. I'm so sorry he's been treated so badly, uh, even by his own party. Especially by his own party. <laughs> Yeah, I know. None of the rest of it would be possible if it was not for uh, the people in his own party. Go on. I know. The other thing is about... There's a big echo on this phone, George. No, uh, it's perfect. Believe me. It was not for me. Go ahead. <laughs> anyway, Boris Johnson. Yeah. Um, I'm afraid he's got no character. Um, oh, he's got a lot of... Is... Uh, let's be fair, Norma. He's got a lot of character. He's not well, yeah. short of character. He may no. be short of ethics, he may no. be short of uh, credibility, but he's a real character. Oh, he is, yes. But the actual, uh, going, not going into all the details of Boris's private life. No, we should it's, avoid um, that. Yeah, but his record in the past with relationships isn't good. And, you know, these N posh no, boys... No, neither has Jeremy Corbyn's relationship with uh, no, relationships in the past. No, but I don't think Jeremy that's, Corbyn... That's one of the reasons why it's not good to go there. No. Maybe not, but these posh boys, I think, don't respect women. I really don't. However, we'll leave that one. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like the echo. Well, let me ask Adam to uh, reply to your first point, which was uh, that uh, Corbyn is being treated unfairly and that Boris Johnson, is, uh, who is almost certainly our next prime minister, is a man, shall we say, wanting on one or two fronts. <laughs> well, the thing with Boris Johnson is that he's got a big monkey on his back, and it's not ex-wives, it's not Michael Gove and his uh, delivery assistants, it's the Brexit party who today unveiled what in, these, in this day and age sort of counts as a manifesto. They revealed some of their policies beyond Brexit, beyond a free trade deal. They were very centrist policies. They were policies, frankly, that I find that I would find it hard to imagine that anyone could oppose them. One, Nigel Farage said broadband and good high-speed mobile connectivity is as much of a right as clean running water. He wants to scrap the expensive David Cameron vanity project, which was high-speed rail too, and invest money in the Midlands, in Wales, in the north of England, in places outside of London that have been neglected. He wants to cut student debt. Uh, he wants to put money back into developing infrastructure. This sounded, there was someone even online who said this sounds almost like a Tony Benn speech so Boris Johnson needs to realize that if he doesn't deliver Brexit on the 31st of October and if he doesn't do what to quote Nigel Farage cross the demilitarized zone and speak to the Brexit party I think that both Labour and the Tories are going to have a huge problem and it's not coming from Jeremy Hunt it's not coming from Israel or Palestine it's coming from Nigel Farage 
Norma, last word to you. Yeah, just quickly. Uh, the other point was this Glastonbury Festival with Michael Evis uh, supporting CND. Caroline Lucas gave a speech today on the pyramid stage on scrapping trading, and it had a brilliant response from all the people there. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. Um, are you telling me that you had your wellies on and you were at the <laughs> pyramid tent at Glastonbury? No, my son, my son is, but I'm Excellent. not now. Wonderful. I got it on uh, twi my Twitter. Excellent. Norma, thanks. You're a legend always. Thanks very much for uh, calling us. Many people, and I mean many, are very happy to hear your voice. Let's take a caller. Yes, who's on the line? Hello? Um, yes, I, you're I on, on the, the line? line. You're talking to the whole world. Go ahead. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, I did actually call you before, George. That was back in um, 2016. And uh, it was just after George, uh, not George Gallup, Trump took the, uh, the office. Yes, as I predicted. And, uh, as I predicted he would. Yes. And I went on about driverless cars and saying how uh, it was a great time for him to take the office and how all this technology was going to uh, happened and it kind of hasn't happened in the last four years. But now there's a candidate on the scene, Andrew Yang, who it seems like uh, could be this uh, sort of uh, new candidate, the sort of thing that I thought Trump might be and really wasn't. Um, and so I wanted to ask Andrew Garrity a question, if that's all right. Rohan, uh, thanks uh, for that call. That's Rohan in Huddersfield. Now, Adam, I did uh, signpost earlier that you were, I think, the yes. first British supporter of uh, Andrew Yang. Uh, respond to Rohan and tell me how you think he's doing. Well, first of all, I think Trump is going to win in 2020, but I think and I hope that Andrew Yang isn't going away. Now, for those people in the States and Britain and everywhere else who might not know who he is, he's a candidate who said openly he's more or less an independent, but to give himself a shot, he's standing in the Democratic primary. His main calling card is that artificial intelligence and robotics already has taken many manufacturing jobs. Next, it's going to take transport jobs including truck, well, truck drivers in American, lorry drivers in British, but the jobs will be taken by robots in both countries, slowly but surely. And then this AI technology will even come after legal assistance, low-level solicitors, and this is going to change the very nature of the workforce. I've got a few robotic solicitors, actually. <laughs> well, there are quite a few robotic... Can I mean, look at Theresa May. She may well be She's the a, most successful... The first, first AI prime minister. <laughs> so, rubbish human prime minister, excellent AI. <laughs> but, but is he, is he uh, too good for uh, politics in the sense that, electoral politics I mean, because, you know, to complain that your microphone wasn't so good and... You've just got to shout louder. The format doesn't really suit you. It's a bit like uh, the ship's captain complaining about the sea, isn't it? There's a bit of that, um, and there is a feeling that he's almost too straightforward, too honest, and um, don't get me wrong, I, I love those qualities, but if you're honest and straightforward, you've also got to be a boxer. Muhammad Ali was very, very honest, but if you called him a liar, he knew what to do about it. And Yang, um, let's give him time. The format itself was quite rubbish, and social media is far more important in many ways than these old legacy medias. Donald Trump already proved that, and I think 
the fact that Yang is striking a moderate tone, saying let's end the zero-sum attitude of saying, oh, because we have a disagreement, we can't be friends, we can't stand next to each other, we can't shake hands or have a discussion. He's totally rejected this, frankly, marching drum of proto-fascism that's sweeping in, saying that people in a civilized society can't discuss things. Uh, as I said when talking about Europe, call me old-fashioned, I prefer Magna Carta to Mein Kampf. And Yang is someone who is very open to talking to everyone. We're all in the same boat mentality is very much part of Andrew Yang's run. I think that the more people hear about him, the more they'll like him. But because he doesn't fit the mold that the corporate media and the old Hillary machine that still has a few of its cylinders running, because they don't want to push him, he will be silenced, so he's got to speak up. Rohan, what do you think? Uh, we've lost Rohan. Uh, we did talk earlier uh, to Cassandra Fairbanks yes. uh, about Yang. Uh, she thought that he did quite well uh, on social media. Yes. Uh, as you say, not the uh, legacy media. And Dakota. one thing I like about I would call her a centrist too in many ways. I don't know if she'd take that as a compliment, but I uh, follow her. She's certainly not into the dogma that's really imprisoning American well, politics. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what's left, what's right is, of course, uh, a moot point in many respects. Yes. See, for me, if you're pro-EU, pro-NATO, you're not left. Quite right. But most of the people that are pro-EU think of themselves <laughs> as left. Uh, equally, if you are against the EU and against NATO uh, and against foreign wars, I can't accept that that means you're right wing. Right and left are uh, blurring, without a doubt. I've been saying that you can say for that some the, years. The reds are tangled up in blue to get back reds to the deal. Reds are tangled up in blue. Brilliant. I wish I'd said that. <laughs> Dakota says, listening to George Galloway and Sputnik International with his guest, would love to ask him who currently in the race to succeed may would be able to make a branch of peace towards uh, North Korea the same way that Trump has. Hashtag ask Adam. I suspect the answer to that is, is none. I mean, uh, if, if Hillary Clinton had been the president, I think we'd already be at war in no. Syria, in Iran, and maybe even in Korea too. It's very, it's highly likely, as, as the kids like to say. I mean, Hillary Clinton was... As the Prime was a, Minister likes to say. Quiet. No, Hillary Clinton was a monstrosity waiting to happen. Of a, a, a cold viciousness that, you know, worse than AI, because AI doesn't have negative emotions, it's supposed to be neutral. But I, I think a lot of people, whether you like or dislike Trump, and lots of people blow hot and cold on Trump, we all do, it's inevitable. I think that people, maybe in a few years, will start to realize the size of the bullet that the world dodged when Hillary lost that election. And I agree, all of those potential fronts of war are potential places she could have dropped more bombs, and that, of course, would have been horrific. And uh, you, you seem very certain that, that Trump will be re-elected. There'll be a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, disappointed uh, to hear that. Just explain why. I think, first of all, there's too many Democrats and people are getting electoral fatigue over a year before the vote. Secondly, I think that in terms of social policy and in terms of the way they convey their social policy, they've gone so far to this identitarian liberal extreme that they're offending and alienating middle America. So whatever Trump does to offend people like Rosie O'Donnell and the Prime Minister of Canada and the rest of it, they're not the people that get to vote. I'll 
ultimately. It's middle America, especially the Rust Belt, where elections are swung. And I think this identitarian agenda, it's so off-putting. It's almost as though to go to one of these uh, democratic debates, you have to look at yourself in the mirror. Do I have the right clothes on, the right skin color, the right... Uh, I just want to get back to we're all human beings. We all have rights. We all need to and at least should engage in the political debate. Uh, that's not necessarily Trump's language. He talks about winners and losers, but hey, at least there's only two of them. There's about 30 different varieties of identities that the Democrats are talking about, and people, I think, are going to get fed up. Who do you think they're going to pick? Probably Biden, but he, he's competing with Jeremy Corbyn for digging his political grave. And unlike Corbyn, who's a man of principles, Biden is an opportunist who hasn't got he many has opportunities. But if you don't like them, he has others. He should run for the Tory leadership. He, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it's his to lose, but I think he's going to lose it. Uh, uh, right at this moment, my guess would be that Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris yeah, will be. Very, very good guesses. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I, I prefer Bernie Sanders. Uh, there are others, uh, but they're not really going to win. And if they did win, they probably wouldn't win the presidency. Yeah. Uh, so it's very interesting. We're going to follow it right through the primary season and all the way uh, up to the uh, presidential election. And I hope uh, that you'll be with us. Adam Gary of Eurasia Future, the cleverest man in England. <laughs> Hashtag ask Adam. That's it, I'm afraid, for the show this evening. Uh, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time and bring another viewer, another listener with you. You can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram, even on Snapchat, and, of course, on my own video channel. Goodbye for now.